first of all, Dr. Asha and uh, uh, Dr. John, thank you so much for, for inviting me. It's a really, it's a pleasure. Um, Kerala is one of my favorite states in, in India because, uh, of course, I teach, um, you know, God of small things every now and then, but also uh, because of its, uh, it's the beauty of it, but also, you know, it's the second in literacy rate in, in um, or maybe the first in India. It has one of the largest economies in India. So when we are looking for examples of some kind of socialistic interventions into the social and political and looking for success stories, Kerala comes to mind because, you know, they did their land reform in 1956, I think. Pakistan still hasn't been able to do it. So thank you so much for inviting me. I wish I could actually be there. Um, and it's always a pleasure uh, to talk to, uh, of course, students and scholars from what I call my home territory, which is the subcontinent. And so before I go into nationalism and try to explain what my understanding of post-colonialism in connection to nationalism is, uh, please keep in mind that I am an open advocate for India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and all, uh, even Afghanistan to someday sit together and decide, let's go beyond these boundaries and create a confederacy where we can all, uh, you know, live together in peace. Um, my father grew up in, uh, uh, of course, in undivided India, and when he was 12, he and a friend of his um, just kind of ran away from home, took the train, and ended up in, in, in what used to be Calcutta, right? That was the possibility of living in the subcontinent. You could come from a small village in Potohar, get on a train in Gujarat, and go all the way to the other end of the subcontinent and still be considered, you know, a part of it, right? So I think we can try to seek it back. And and that's where we come in. Our job is to imagine, right? To dare to think. Uh, and if we get into nationalistic alignments, then we just keep reproducing the national narratives. And uh, those might get us promotions and, you know, privileges, but they don't make us into the kind of scholars that I encourage my students to be. So I'll start with the post-colonialism by its very nature is a transnational field of study, but it also has a conundrum. At its very originary moment, it also gets connected to the debates of nationalism. Because any subdiscipline, when you're creating it, you create its canon. And the canon, even now, when I look at the list that I give to my doctoral students, it is Africa, South Asia, Caribbean. And within that, we pick certain major authors based on their national origin. And we do not really create these reading lists in conceptual way. Right, especially of primary works. The theory, of course, is conceptual. So that means we are kind of, we are 
we have constantly fought against the dictates of nationalism, but we constantly keep articulating ourselves in nationalistic terms, right? That's the problem, uh, you know, the genetic problem with post-colonial studies. But, I mean, part of it is historical. Pretty much all independence movements, all freedom movements were fought along national lines, right? Uh, India is a great example of that. And uh, if you read Fanon, right, his The Wretched of the Earth, there is a speech by him and an essay which is on the national question. And that is a response to Sinor and others who were fighting for creating what they termed the United States of Africa. So they didn't want the French colonies to become independent nation states. They wanted them to become sort of on the model of United States, a coalition of different nations into a larger whole. And Fanon's argument there was that that's a worthy goal, but we first need national consciousness. We first must build nations, nation states, and then work towards larger coalitions. That was his argument, right? Uh, so first the distinction between the nation and the nation states. Now nations can exist without a state, okay? Uh, there can be a group of people, a community, which is which considers itself autonomous, which considers that it has its own universal history, uh, its own culture, its own identity, and they can consider themselves a nation. And then eventually when, tho when those belief systems are, sub are mobilized politically, then they can strive for what we call a nation state. The ideal example of it and, and the question that we still keep trying to answer was the creation of Pakistan, right? Um, now, uh, both sides have different views on it. My, I had written my first book on it um, because what I was trying to trace against the dominant scholarship from Europe and even from India and Pakistan where uh, they see the divide between Muslims of North India and in uh, and, and the Hindu majority in terms of party politics, right? They see it, okay, Indian National Congress did this and then Muslim League did that and that's how they, they define the divide. But my idea is that, was and still is that before we mobilize anything into a nationalistic movement, the concept of a nation must exist, it must precede it, right? And so when I went and traced it in the elite texts of the Muslim elite after the 1858 rebellion, you can clearly see that the Muslim elite were positing themselves as under pressure, under threat by the British, and, and their efforts were to preserve their culture. And it is within that moment that the idea of Muslim exceptionalism emerges, where Muslims start seeing themselves as, as an entity being treated differently by the British, right? And then that gets mobilized into a nationalistic politics. So for a lot of 
theorists of nationalism will, will then tell you that in any given society, in ever, any given political system, there are always objective differences, right? And by what do they mean by it is that people can come from different ethnicities, different groups, different religions, and still live within the same nation. And though they can hold those differences, but they can still work together and live. But when those differences are subjectified, that is when a nationalistic movement starts. So by subjectifying, you mean that when they are politicized, when they are, when the differences are articulated in clear terms, and you hear that these two communities are irreconcilable, right? And the only way they can be at peace is if one of them has their own country and the other has their own country. So this this uh, argument of irreconcilability was given by a lot of people in the 1940s. About seven, eight books come come out. Uh, if you read, uh, you know, uh, B. R. Ambedkar's book in, on on the division of India, he he is for Pakistan, but his idea is that these two communities are probably irreconcilable. Uh, there are a lot of Muslim writers who are proving the same things. But ir irreconcilable in what sense, right? I mean, is it that they couldn't live together in the same communities? That historically was a proven fact that they were actually living together in, in small villages and major towns. Um, you know, where I come from, our villages were mixed populations. You'll have Hindu families, you'll have Sikh families, a few Christian families, and they lived in peace for hundreds of years. Okay, they didn't intermarry or anything else, but they sent, you know, when, when there was a um, worship at the temple, you know, they, the, the, the Hindu community would, would send, share their prasad with the people, right? On Eid, the Muslims will share their sweets and their fruits with their Hindu neighbors. So there was reconcilability, there was peaceful living, but when it gets subjectivized and politicized, we start telling ourselves that we have never lived, we have never liked each other, we are irreconcilable. And that's where the destructive aspect of nationalism comes in. So in post-colonial studies then, there's quite a few scholars, me included, who are post-nationalist. And post-nationalist in a sense, not that we believe that there should be one global nation, but we believe that we should think beyond the confines of a nation state so that we, we can have a world in which it doesn't matter where you are from we can talk to each other, we can create solidarities, right? Part of it is Marxist internationalism uh, or culturalist internationalism. But the idea is to think the world still from the point of view of who is oppressed and whose rights are being taken over by another group and how the global economy works, still focusing on that. But instead of just focusing on the imperatives of a nation state, just think as Spivex taught us, right, in planetary terms, right? And there is an imperative to do so for post-colonial studies, right? Right now, the planet is under so much stress. I mean, we are all going through a pandemic. Um, and 
and and the nation state is sort of an impediment in that right so we have millions of vaccines available here in united states right there are people about 30% of us citizens don't want them right so those vaccines are sitting here right if we thought in planetary terms the us government would say like okay we have 50 million extra doses just sitting here why can't we send them to india why can't why can't we say here united nations let's create a pool and put all these doses that are available in the world let's create a database and that way you get to move you say you have 10 million extras here india needs 5 million in the south of india let's move them right if we thought in planetary terms then the national economies would not matter when you're dealing with a calamity like that same with the environment right uh, so i increasingly see nationalism it's kind of an ambivalent position i have on it on one hand it is the last bulwark against the forces of neoliberalism right the only thing that saves your workers or workers over here or in Pakistan from the intrusions of global capital is whatever protections a nation state can give you, right? But on the other hand, it's also the largest impediment in terms of saving the global environment, in terms of we human beings living in peace together because the chauvinistic nationalism um, takes over right and 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 overwrites our own basic human instincts right and think of it this way like i think you all are familiar with imagined communities i like um, benedict anderson's argument about nation being an imagined community and it come it's connected to print culture and all but one thing that he misses in his book and which i hope i can someday write about is that while we, we see nation as an imagined community, along with it is, is packaged the national prejudices, right? So we see ourselves as a national community living in this container called the nation state, but within that narrative is built in the idea of who is your enemy, who is the belligerent nation, because part of that threat is needed, right? to stabilize the idea of a nation state. And then without even meeting people, you could be sitting, you know, in Kerala, I could be sitting in Islamabad and all I'll see is, oh, this person is Indian, right? And then my prejudices will pre-decide how I will view you, right? Without ever knowing you as a fellow human being. So, so that is the problem which I see with, with nationalism because it forces us to pre-decide how we think of other people, right? And how must we act about them? I've seen this here, you know, like when international students come here, in the first five or six months, they are like, oh, they're Bangladeshis, they're Indians, they're Pakistanis. And slowly when they talk to each other, and you know, they realize, you know, that they have so much in common right and and that they can trust each other they can become friends right right now in my graduate seminar there are two students one from pakistan right and one from india 
um, she is from I think she's from Kolkata and, and and so they sit together they study together they have become friends they share food one is a Muslim one is a Hindu so on, on a micro level that is the possibility when we get to know each other as fellow human beings we can transcend right these prejudices that are formed through these narratives of the nation so what can like post-colonialism do as a field of study uh, as a subfield of study i think there is already enough material in our theoretical works as well as in our primary texts where we try to imagine a world in which we fight the imperatives of global capitalism and we fight it together in solidarity and and what's the reason behind it i mean the power of neoliberal capitalism you are seeing it in india right now right um, what made india great economically was never the neoliberal economic model what made india great despite its problems okay i'm not denying any problems that every nation has its problems what made india the success story of post-colonial world was its diversity right but then acknowledgement within a constitution of that diversity right and then the leftist almost socialistic five-year plans right and building of the Indian infrastructure. Remember, until 1989, I think India was a closed economy, which means that to import anything into India, you had to get permits, you had to pay heavy taxes. We in Pakistan used to make fun of it because we could have the sharp TVs and Japanese TVs and German cameras or whatever. And it was like, look at India, man, they don't have all these things. But what India did with those 45 years is they built their own industry, the 10th largest industrial base in the world, right? They built their own educational system. They built their own commodity chains, right? So by the time uh, Rajiv Gandhi opens up the economy, it wasn't like here, Daivu is here and, you know, like GM is here and Toyota is here. Here, we are here to sell our cars to you. No. They had to compete with the local industry. The local industry had developed their own loyalties, right? So instead of making India a playground for international corporations, they made it a competitive space, right? And that was the Indian success story. But, and I apologize if this offends you, what the Indian government is doing now is undoing that power of Indian economy. By, by just buying into this neoliberal model, right? And privatizing everything. What happens when government privatizes its redemptive functions, okay? Think of wherever you see the right-wing movements, the fundamentalists, right? All the places where you see militant fundamentalist organizations, there will be probably an ethnic identity on its their or a religious identity. But part of the reason these people rise post-1990s is that the state abdicates its function of taking care of its people and privatizes it, 
right? When state does that, it loses its ability to create loyalties. I mean, how does, and this comes from Achille Mamembe, by the way, how does the state create social debt, right? It says, you live in Kerala, you live in Uttar Pradesh, you live in a small village, it doesn't matter. You are an Indian. If you fall ill, we'll make sure there is a dispensary there. We'll make sure there is a hospital there. If you have children, we'll make sure that if they get early education, and then if they are good, they take this exam and they can get into the university and they don't have to pay all that money. So in the process, they are creating social debt. You feel like, look, man, this, this state, my country gave me all this much. I owe it to be a responsible citizen. I owe it to be a citizen who follows the law, right? So you owe your loyalty. The other way of creating social debt was through salaried work. So the British did it, but the Indian state did it too. You know, in every corner of the world, I always use the example of, of the railways, right? Now, if you go to Pakistan, there, there are 1,600 miles of tracks, right? They go from north all the way to Tharparkar, Kokrapar. I've traveled along it too. Uh, so there is, you know, the guy who changes the train track, the Kanta, right? We call it in Hindi and Urdu. He's sitting there in a small hut in the desert, right? But every month his salary comes from the federal government. When he retires, he gets retirement. His children can go to a government school. So imagine if someone from the Taliban goes to that guy and says, hey, we'll give you 500 rupees. Would you blow up the track for us? What would he say? His livelihood is inherently connected to the safety of that infrastructure, right? All he's going to say is, no, man, you know, this is my livelihood. This is what my family depends on. That is the social debt of government. Now, government of Pakistan knows that they don't need 80,000 employees to run the railways, right? The Japanese came 10 years ago and said, we can modernize it and we can run it with 400 people. If the Pakistanis go for it, which it is likely they will, what would they create? 80,000 people who have suddenly lost their jobs. These are 80,000 people who are no longer socially indebted to the government. These are 80,000 potential people who can be recruited by anyone who can give them a symbolic idea of we'll give you this kind of power and we'll take care of your kids, right? That's what neoliberalism does, right? It, it creates these free agent subjectivities. And it then... So since they can't change your social life, what do they give you? They give you the myth of who you are, right? So we'll give you, if we are in India, we'll give you the myth of, you know, the Hindu Raj, right? We're not going to change your caste situation. We can't even give you a job, but we'll give you, look, you know, a staff and we'll tell you, go beat up people who are not living a proper Hindu life, right? And God forbid if they're Christians or Hindus, they don't even deserve your attention. 
So you get these young people who have no prospects in life, and since the government has abdicated the responsibility to give them those prospects in life because it has privatized those functions and given it to the private corporations, you then give these people some symbolic power, right? Some arbitrary power that they... But here's the dilemma. When all these politicians do that, then even if they want to change their own stance, that group doesn't let them do that. It controls the narrative. That's what is happening in America, right? That's what is happening in India, right? So, sorry, I mean, I'm not trying to be political. I mean, even though we are all, what I'm trying to highlight is that part of what is happening in the world within nation states is there's not a may not be a causal collection connection but it is happening because the way we run the global economy we have tried to keep nation states as political entities but as economic entities they have to configure their economies so that they meet the wto demands right and in the process of doing that poverty keeps increasing and since they cannot alleviate that poverty, then they have to come up with these symbolic modes of harnessing that youth, that power into something else. And that's where from 1990 onwards, as the left recedes and as the socialist thought recedes, it is constantly replaced by right-wing militant politics. I mean, you can look at the Arab world. Right when America decimates Amal in Lebanon, who takes over? Right. Similarly, uh, anywhere else, wherever the leftist movements are removed or, or or replaced, the conservative movements take over. The religious fundamentalists take over. Right, because that gap needs to be filled. What was the promise of the leftist movements? The promise of the leftist movements were that they had to be symbolically internationalist, right? They they could work in solidarity with the the Indian leftists could easily work in solidarity with the leftists in Sindh, right? They would correspond with each other. They had equal sympathies because they thought in terms of class. So they thought in terms of who is a worker, who's part of the proletariat, and not in terms of the nation. That was the possibility that the nation state erases. So I know I'm talking too much. I'm going to stop in a few minutes and then open it up for questions. So, so my idea is, as scholars of literature, I mean, you all are scholars already, are studying to be, um, is this is the time, these two, three, four years, you will decide what you want to be, right? Would you be a foundational scholar, which is very easy in India, Pakistan, right? Get a government job, um, just teach your classes, but make good relationships and, and, you know, just make sure your chair likes you, then your dean likes you, and then you become full professor, and then you become a dean. And then somehow, you know, if your your affiliations are with a political party, you become the vice chancellor. That's one path, uh, which is a very tempting path. And the other path is a balanced path where you have to retain a job to feed yourself and your children. But 
ask yourself, what have I done to make sure that my students understand the complexity of the nation within which they live? What have I done to teach them to respect other human beings, right? Uh, to be generous, to be kind. And I always tell my students, you can't teach kindness without being kind. You can't teach generosity without being generous, right? And if we, and we are all imperfect beings, right? You know, uh, on the process of perfecting ourselves, but it's not a project of one lifetime, right? Um, so, so decide what will you be, right? As a scholar, as a teacher, because that will then define your actions within the confines of the nation state, right? But beyond that, will your thought be planetary? Will you dare to think beyond the nation, right? Um, the first time I talked like this in Pakistan was, was a gathering of, you know, very powerful people. And, uh, and they were like, how can you say that? And I was like, if I will not think this, who is going to think this? Imran Khan is not going to come out and say, I'm a post-nationalist. No, his identity is connected to constantly keep preaching that Pakistan is a great nation and I am its prime minister. Mr. Modi is not going to come and say, you know, uh, I am a post-nationalist. No, it's our job right? The intellectuals, the scholars to write, not just the nation, right? But to write the post-nation into our narratives, the, cosm the cosmopolitan aspects of, uh, will it succeed? Will it change the world? No, I don't think so. I mean, we are up against implacable forces, right? But at least, you know, I don't know, I know you are in Kerala, so you don't speak Hindi or Urdu. I'm just assuming, but there's a beautiful verse by Faz Ahmed Faz. Uh, the first line is, Jis dhaj se koi maktal mein gaya, wo shan salamat rehti hai. Right? So what he means by it is that it doesn't matter if you win or lose at the end. But the way, the way you enter the field, right? The way you hold your head together and fight for something is more important, right? That The, the end is not important. The intention behind that, the praxis behind that is more important. So this is what we do in our classes, you know, post-colonial studies. My students here are usually baffled in the first couple of weeks because they uh, come in thinking we'll read a couple of novels and talk about the main character and what are his or her problems. And then they we end up talking about macroeconomics. We end up talking about politics, about the possibilities of thought itself. Um, and that's what I will encourage you to do, you know, from your school, those of you working on MPhils, PhDs, right? When it comes to writing a dissertation, instead of writing the dissertation about, which has been written a million times, the great history of India or the great history of Kerala and the, and the perfect leadership of Kerala, you know, write something about the possibilities that that have not been explored, right, in literature, um, in, 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 in thought. So I'm going to stop here and, and then see if you have any questions.
like i mean think of anderson like he starts his book by creating a binary structure he I mean, remember he says no one will die for eu so his idea is that nation is the only thing for which we live and die an idea that has been disproven right there are post national entities some economic some deeply destructive right isis is a post national entity right um so my my hope isn't to erase the that's why i said my position is ambivalent and that it's ambivalent because i would say we need to retain the core concept of the nation right because we need the nation state to give us what we want an educational system as as ernest gellner would say like as an gellner's idea is that the only reason nation state exists is because it's the only institution that can create a national education system and without a national education system you cannot develop a national identity right so we let's say we keep the loose national identity there and we keep the borders the european union didn't erase the lines on a map france is still france right um germany is still germany what they erased was that the barriers of movement trans border think of it this way the global capital tells us it's a free market economy right you guys are living in kerala you are more familiar with your marx marxist thought than i could ever be right now there are three aspects of a productive system right there is labor there is capital right and there is is the actual commodity that you produce in this neoliberal borderless economy the commodities can move freely capital can move freely but the most important aspect of commodity production labor is the one that is controlled that has to stand in line at every border ask for a visa and a permission to work right why is that because by keeping the labor fixed within the national boundary you can keep it cheap i can pay someone in ahmedabad 500 dollars a month to do software programming for me sitting here in united states because that person with equally with, with the same ability with someone sitting in california sells his or her labor for 500 dollars a month because we we took away the possibility of him saying i can come and work in california right so it's easy to keep labor cheap right by fixing labor so what i'm suggesting is that we retain all those aspects of a national economy and a national identity that make sure that our people are not exploited by the global corporations and all we retain those but we then say okay india pakistan right how much money do we spend on retaining these two armies you know i wish we could like employ them that okay plant trees okay that's a good function we have a trained workforce divide the countries into zones give each battalion and i suggested this this when i was in the army so they are not fighting wars anyway so tell them this is your 500 acres this is your 1000 acres you got 5 years make it green right then maybe those armies serve some purpose right uh, so what i am saying is that keep retain the basic structure of the nation state your national government your national economy but instead of 
having hard borders, right, open them up, right? I should be able to walk to Wagga border, even with my passport, and say, I want to go visit Delhi, right? I should be able to invest in Delhi. So kind of a confederacy in which we retain the core identities of our nations, but try to open up a regional identity where we rely on a certain mechanism where we are no longer belligerent nations, but nations, you know, that talk to each other, that travel to each other, that work with each other. That is the hope, right? Uh, is it possible? I think it is, right? But how would it be possible is by you, me, and everyone else imagining it first and then coming up with proposals of how to do it, right? I mean, that's the that's the idea behind it. So if you look at India, of course, there are great scholars in India who are already thinking in on these lines, uh, but nothing much on these lines other than one or two people in Pakistan is coming from Pakistan, right? So the first step would be to to dare to think it. But I agree with you, Dr. Saib, we will have to retain some semblance of a national government and a national law. So my idea is, is the solution only stringent and strong nationalism? Because that has its own problem. So my, my idea is, which I have articulated as well, because I still see the nation state as a promising space against all these forces. Right. But my idea is in Africa, right now, individual nations do not have the power to fight the IMF mandates, right, to fight the imperatives of global corporations and, and China. Right. But what if they did become a loose confederacy of United Nations? What if they negotiated as a block? Instead of how does global capital undercut our national interests? A factory comes to me, to Pakistan, and says, uh, we will not sign this, we will not sign this, but we'll create 400 jobs. And Pakistan says, no, that's not what we want, this, this, and this for our labor. And there's like, okay, we'll go to Bangladesh, right? Because nations are competing for these things, right? So why not? India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, you become a block, right? A multinational corporation wants to come in and exploit your labor. They shouldn't be able to go around making you underbid your own price, but they should realize it doesn't matter if the Pakistanis don't take us, the Indians are not going to take us either because you have developed a post-national way mechanism where you think through the ramifications of industry. Same goes for terrorism. It is post-national already. Can we fight it? Can India fight it alone? Yes, probably it can by sealing its borders and by policing its own population. But the ideal way would be to develop a mechanism where Pakistanis, Indians, Bangladeshis sit together and say, this is in no one's interest. How can we bring our resources together to fight it or to control it or to change it. That is what I'm suggesting. We already know that the nation states alone, even when they are strong nation states, can easily be manipulated by powerful forces.
right? By, by China, you gave me the example of China, but by multinational corporations, because we are playing them one against the other, right? So what if we built a coalition? What is the SARC that we have in South Asia instead of just being an armchair organization? What if the leaders actually sat together and said, okay, let's develop an economic mechanism where we don't undercut each other, where we share whatever we can, we create an anti-poverty fund to which everyone contributes, but we also develop a mechanism which allows us to mandate as a larger than nation organization to say we will not accept these, these dictates of WTO. Right now, as a nation, even India, as powerful as it is, cannot go against anything that they have signed off in WTO, not because someone will invade you. No, it's even more, it's even simpler than that, right? With two or three pronouncements from certain circles of global economy, right, your, cred, your, your credit lines would, would, would vanish, right? Uh, your line of credits would go off. And as soon as that happens, no matter how hardworking your workers are, your economy would, would start going down. That's how powerful these systems are. So that's why my position is not an absolute removal of national identities or nation states, but nation states that are capable of reaching out at least to their regional neighbors. Especially, let's say, in case of subcontinent, where we have a huge history together, right? And, and coming together and thinking, how can we stop being the enemy states and then start becoming a block? Right? And the European Union did it, right? There was a cost to individual nations. They lost some part of their sovereignty. But what they gained was the second largest market in the world, right? if you're thinking in capitalistic terms, right? Uh, but as I said, my thoughts are absolutely not fully formed. Um, these are just aspirational thoughts in, in so many ways. Okay, uh, first of all, China to me is absolutely not a communist society. It has a communist party, which is not communist. It's, a, it's the most capitalist society in the world. It, has, it is a capitalist society with ideal conditions for human exploitation. Why? Because they have one-party system which claims to be communist, but it doesn't take care of its own people. It, it has created millions upon millions of people who are captive labor. Now think of it. Pakistanis always tell me about China model, and I tell them, here is the China model, okay? you remove about 25 million people, the very peasants who had brought about the revolution from their natural living conditions and, and, and impoverish them, right? Then you bring them to the cities and create huge buildings of captive labor, right? And then you sell that labor to global corporations. That is rise of China, okay? That's why India's rise is more miraculous. Because India did it while still being a democracy, right? 
No other post-colonial nation, and I will say it unequivocally, has accomplished what India did because the problem of entering that level of capital is the price. There is always a human cost. And only those, right now the global economy has reached a kind of mechanism where you have to, where you have to write off a certain part of your population to actually succeed. And China was able to do that. So first of all, they are not communist states because communism by its very nature was internationalist, but Stalin killed that, right? When he made it into a nationalist thing, right? But two, there are certain promises that communism makes. One of it is that everyone would be taken care of. You will not be dependent on wage labor to feed your family. How is China communist when I am dependent on wage labor to take care of my children? So let's, let's dispel this idea that China is somehow communist. Okay, it's not, right? It's a capitalistic society with the worst kind of draconian capitalism you can ever see. This is what capital wants to be. This is what Trump wants, right? Workers with no voice of their own, captive labor, right? People with no rights. This is what capital becomes, right? If you unleash it and, and run it with a fascist government, right? This is what it accomplishes, right? I don't think so. That is a sustainable model, right? Because there is no way you can keep one billion people while they are part of commodity production into a level where they remain subservient and may remain married to this chauvinistic idea of nationalism without force, right? If you bring about real democracy in China, I'm not saying their economy will collapse. What I'm saying is China will stop being the place where everyone wants to develop industry because what in what what brought the industry there was cheap labor, and then the infrastructure was developed. So the contradiction is there, but just remind yourself how capitalist, how communist are they? The problem with communism was, the initial problem was that it became nationalistic. I mean, after Stalin purges the Third International, you know, there is not much left of the international itself, right? But here's another thing, and this is what I have conversations with the leftists in Pakistan. You know, go beyond Lenin, Lenin and Trotsky and, and all the other people. The best Marxist thought right now is coming from the Italian workerist Marxists, okay? It's like people like Franco Berardi, right? People like Carlo Versilone, all these people who post-1968 gave up on the central idea of a central central hierarchy and, and became autonomous, right? So, uh, and there's a beautiful book by Franco Berardi called The Soul at Work, right? So if you read that, you will already realize that that what Chinese are doing, it's not really Marxism or, you know, communism anymore. Sorry, I, I kind of, but I, I really like your observation, right? America is emerging as the neo-capitalist nation. 
but the same nation becomes the center of modern academic discussions that hits a huge blow on neo-capitalism on the third world. In such a contradicting state, what do you think as the future of American nationalism? Isn't there a division of political in... Oh, absolutely. I mean, here is the... I live in America. I've lived there for 25 years, right? But I will always be a Rajput from Port Hohar. That's, you know, my cultural identity. My wife laughs at it because she says, what are the Rajputs famous for? And I was like, for having no business sense and fighting in every war for whosoever came calling and dying in it. That's what we are famous for. We're not very smart people, right? But here is the beauty of America. It's the contradictions of America that is its beauty, right? And what are those? The contradictions are there is a huge conservative right wing, right, which has its own permutations. There are those who are okay. They are just they are just social conservatives. There are those who are just economic conservatives, and then there are racist, xenophobic conservatives, right? All of them are part of America. Then, as you come to the middle, there is a huge middle which is neither this nor that. These are your <coughs> average people who go to work, right, make a living, try to raise their children, and try to be decent to each other. And then there is a left, right, which believes that there should be socialized health care, that there should be free education. And, and so this is the spectrum of American politics. Most productive part of it is this middle, right? Because these are the people who may not be politically committed, but they are willing to accept differences. They are willing to be respectful to other people. That is the place of the most promise. Because far left would tell you everyone is evil, and then the right would tell you everyone is evil. So this is the spectrum of American politics. The contradiction of America is that, that the cutting-edge thought emerges here, but also the policies that enslave the world the policies that create the kind of world that we exist in also emanate from here, right? That is the contradiction of America. What keeps this going is a viable democratic system, right? Now, we all know that we are not free, right? Right now, I know I'm not free in America. I can say whatever I want. I can write whatever I want without getting in trouble. But if I want to leave my job and go elsewhere and do something else, I am not free because I need health insurance, right? And that means that I cannot just leave and go elsewhere. My choices are look for a job that may pay me less but has health insurance because without that, with my pre-existing condition, I will not be able to sustain my life in America. These are the limitations in a democratic society. That how do they keep us under control, right? Students who come to our universities are absolutely free to have their freedom of opinion, but their scholarships are connect connected to good conduct, right? So chances are if they are on a scholarship, they are not likely to go and join a protest and certainly not a protest that actually marches on the Capitol because if they get arrested and if they have a record, they will lose their financial aid, right? So in a free society, then, then Capitol creates it, its own modes of controlling our movement, 
controlling our freedom, right? But the possibilities still exist, right? People create solidarities, people create ways of doing things differently. That possibility is still there, right? And that's what I like about it, that there are people not afraid of asking questions, and there are people who are constantly try to think differently, try to figure out things differently. But there are millions upon millions of people in the United States who don't care about these things, who don't reflect on what's the impact of US capitalism on the world, who are not worried that workers elsewhere in the world are deeply being exploited, right, to, to give them the cheap goods that they can buy at Walmart. But there is this whole spectrum of American constituencies and identities. It depends where you fall in it, right? And that will decide your worldview. That will decide how you view India, how you view China. So always keep that in mind that there is nothing singularly American. Okay, America is always particularly which group you are a part of, which class, which region, which faith, what politics, just as there is no monolithic India, right? Um, because and, and so one thing that I always teach my students is to be precise, to be particular. When you mobilize a generalization for an argument, point it out, this is a generalization. I am using it to make a point, but I understand that such huge generalizations are improbable, right? Uh, so that's, uh, and you say how far such contradictions between multicultural propositions and reality of the white dominant can go together. That's also like, so how far they can go? Um, again, it depends on where on the spectrum you are, right? Um, I would say, that there is a limit. The dominant groups, even when they are progressive, right, they eventually have internalized this privileged ideas, idea of where they are in a given department, in wherever they are. So it depends on the numbers, right? So let's say if, if it's just Masood Raja in a department of 55 faculty doing what I do, Obviously, my function would be perfunctory. It may not have a lot of impact. I will have impact on my students, but not on departmental policy, right? But if I have two African-American colleagues, two Chicano-Chicana colleagues, a few Arab colleagues, if there are seven or eight of us and we become a constituency, then we start having an impact because then we we speak in solidarity, right? So. The lesson from that is that you sh you develop solidarities with people in the same political situation, and then you look for allies in the dominant group. You try to create those allies, and then you work together for change o on a micro level. But on a nationalistic level, same thing is happening on the national level. There is a, a left in United States, but it's not a united left, right? There are those who are single-issue leftists. There are those who are Marxist. There are those who are anarchist. And then there are those who are middle of the less road progressive people. The idea is to build a coalition, right? And work through that coalition without forcing your views on the other group. And I think that's what works on the micro level in United States. 
and that's what works on a larger scale. The most dangerous place to be in any given culture is to assume in the fiction that you alone have to do it and that you alone have the answers. I think as human beings, we, we must always create these networks of solidarities with others. So uh, first of all, I don't think so the identities were imposed or can be imposed, right? The identities were there. Muslims were Muslims, Hindus were Hindus, within uh, Sikhs were Sikhs. Those objective cultural identities were already there, right? The question was, how are those identities politically mobilized, right? So we can't go into the intricacies of the Muslim League and Congress politics, but let's assume by 1940, a segment of Muslim elite had constructed this idea that Muslims form a separate nation and not a separate ethnicity, and they deserve to have a separate homeland, right? The, the, the impetus for that was the fear of minoritization, right? Muslims felt that they would become a perpetual minority, and maybe the elite couldn't reconcile with that. Now, the partition, think of it this way. India lost a part of its territory, but nothing in symbolic terms because India as an entity had an integral identity with its regional permutations. They didn't have to go and construct an Indian identity, right? Because they already had a history and they were a history of a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious nation, right? The burden of creating a national identity was heavier on Pakistani politicians because they had just carved out this territory that historically never existed as a nation. It, it was riven with internal differences, right? So if you look at the American, Pakistani textbooks, Pakistani politicians beginning, so much of effort is spent on retro, retroactively creating a narrative of the nation because that needed to be created, right? And that is why in, in that narrative, India is written into that narrative as this other against which you must define your identity. So it becomes a kind of reactionary national identity, right? Now, Pakistanis will go for my juggler for this argument, but I mean, this is a question of historical fact, right? So what do you do with that? And meanwhile, India being 15 times larger than Pakistan, constantly the politicians keep saying, oh, we have this threat from Pakistan. And if we don't do this, Pakistanis are going to do this, right? Um, so both nations then, even though they had lived together for a thousand years, have developed part of their national narrative is, is is writing the other as this belligerent threat, right? So the post-partition problem then is not necessarily to have good relationships, economic or political. It is to rewrite the narratives, right? To tell the stories that are not told, right? So about 15 years ago, I wrote a short story right, which was published in South Asia Review. They did a, a section on Pakistani fiction. 
and I'm the only Pakistani who is in both their issues. Somehow they included me in the Indian <laughs> fiction issue too. So I had a story in that and that. So in that story, uh, and sorry, I'm taking too long, but I think this is an important question. Uh, what I did was it, I, it was a narrative of this young boy trying to figure out his identity. And he tells the story that his grandfather told him about where his people came from. Right. And he tells the story of the Agnikola Rajputs, right? And the myth of how the Rajput clans came to be. And then the myth of, of Johar, right? When when the first Johar happens, right? When when the Rajputs, you know, they would um what did they do? They they built a huge pyre in the fortress of Chitol, right? And then women and children wore these beautiful their garments and they walked into the fire, right? And that was called Johar. And then the men in the morning, you know, would put a tilak of that ash on their forehead. And that was called Kasa. And they rode out of the fortress against their Muslim invaders to die, right? So I put that in that story because part of me was capturing from history my pre-Islamic heritage. Right, That we were not always Muslims. We were converts. We came from outside and then we were Hindus, right? No one had taught us about that. And so when I read that story at the Pakistani embassy, people asked me, it's like, where did you find that? And I was like, well, I did my research, right? But remember, by writing that story, I mean, not many people have read it, right? But at least young people from my clan can now know that four, five generations before them, they were all Hindus, that they had something in common with Hindus, right? And that it's okay, they became Muslims, but part of their family tree is still Hindu, part of it is still Sikh. So, so what possibility that narrative creates is it gets rid of this sanitized religious identity, which increasingly becomes purely Muslim, right? And then replaces it with a history where there is a multiplicity, right? There is some kind of polysemous cultural identity. So I think that would be what we could do. Rewrite the narratives, small as they are, large as they are, and then work from that, right? Thank you, sir. Okay, Samad. Sir, as I understand from your talk, you spoke of the importance of left ideology and its potential to maintain solidarity among human beings. The emergence of right-wing ideologies, according to you, is chiefly because of the failure of the left. What are the reasons that led to the failure of the left ideology? That's a really good question. I mean, a lot of people deride Marxism and speak of its ills and all that, right? Think of what, how long did we have? By and large, we've only had like 75 years of power, right? And that too, like in a country which wasn't ready for it. How many people have capitalism killed and is constantly killing, right? But the problem of the left, internationalist left, was first when Stalin declared that left could be nationalist, right? That, that Marxism could be contained in 
in a nation state, right? And when he kills the third international, literally kills the third international, okay? If you look at the meeting of the third international in Moscow, there were people from like 50, 64 different countries from Turkey, Tayyip Jiap was there, Ramon Roy's people were there from India. It was the most international organization of activists and leaders. When Stalin purges that, that kills any kind of international affiliation. Of course, the First World War already, you know, if the proletariat was the same, right, why were they killing each other? Because nationalism supersedes international sympathies. So what was at the core of theorization of class for Marx, right? At the core of it was that Consciousness is socially produced, right? That comes from the Grundrisse, right? And if it is socially produced, that means that people who share the same kind of material conditions will ultimately probably have the same kind of consciousness of the world. And since they have the same kind of consciousness of the world, they constitute a class, right? When you constitute a class that way, then, then you can become transnational. People working in precarious conditions in India, people working in precarious conditions in the United States, constitute a class, their interests are similar, they will work together. But what cuts across is the most powerful reactionary force, that is nationalism, right? So you replace those large alliances with national alliances, and if that nationalism is chauvinistic, then it, it you don't care if the worker on the, on the other side in the trenches is also a worker. You are a Pakistani, you are an Indian, you are a Bengali or Bangladeshi. So, so that those were some of the reasons of its failure. But also remember that the failure of communism also was that there was an onslaught of the rest of the world, right? The entire capitalist project of the world took it upon itself to destroy and eradicate any kind of leftist-leaning governments and politics. Look at United States, what they did in South America. Pretty much CIA eliminated any leftist government that came up during the 1970s and 60s. So there were active means of, same in Africa, right? And there were long-term capitalistic way of doing things that did that. And so part of it was the internal failure of how Marxism gets monopolized by powerful figures and becomes into an oppressive system itself. It becomes revengeist, it becomes starts taking class revenge on others. And part of it was the forces of capital themselves. Is it still plausible? Absolutely. I mean, for as long as there is inequality in the world, for as long as there is injustice in the world and unequal redistribution of global resources, there will be a, a room for socialistic way of living and running a nation state or running our country. Now, if you ever want to learn, and a lot of people don't do that, of how to make sure that, that a revolution or a revolutionary praxis does not become oppressive in itself when it gains power, I highly recommend reading chapter four of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Because part of that book isn't just teaching us how to develop a pedagogy, it is also teaching us 
how to be true revolutionaries, right? How to not become an image of the very system that we are replacing. So right now in the world, there is no singular communist party. We don't need it. But there are solidarities, right? And that's what we need to work on solidarities of workers in India with workers in United States. And if we can continuously keep building that, then we become a global force loosely aligned. And I'll give you an example. About eight or nine years ago, I think in Boston, the bus drivers union was on strike. Right now in United States, there aren't many union rights left. So the owners weren't coming to them to negotiate the contract. So they did their research and they went to their international and the international told them, well, the London bus union is part of the same international, right? So they requested the London bus union and said, would you strike in solidarity with us? And so the London bus union said, yes, we will strike in solidarity with you. Both were owned by the same global corporation. So the London bus union sent their threat to go on strike. Two days later, the Boston company came and started negotiating their contract with their bus drivers, right? Now that is solidarity across the ocean by leftist organizations where they are not governed by a centralized party, but where they are helping each other in solidarity, right? Right now, let's say if workers in India who are being exploited and if they are unionized, most of the times, you know, workers are not unionized. If they go on strike in a factory, all the corporation will do is either tell Moody Saab to put the, that thing down because it's against India's interest, like striking workers. If they cannot use the oppressive resources of the Indian state to do it, then they will go to Bangladesh and say, we have a factory, $1.5 billion. What will you give us if we move it here? And the Bangladeshis would say, well, we'll give you tax credits and we will not charge you any taxes and we'll help you build the factory. And they would just close down, you know, the operation in Chennai, which used to be what, Madras, right? And then move the factory there. So how do they do that? Because we are undercutting each other. Right? If we had a global solidarity of workers, maybe we could tell the Bengali workers, hey, this is what they are doing to us. Would you put some pressure on your own government to not let Apple come to Bangladesh because they'll close us and go there, right? These are just provisional thoughts, but people are thinking on it, right? World Social Forum people thinks about it, debates it. The, the autonomous Marxists from Italy, they are writing about it, they are thinking about it. None of it has all the answers, but there are things we can take, right? And then cobble together a way of thinking the world differently. I, I like decolonial thinking when Walter Manolo uh, writes about it, right? And other people too. And uh, I have had the pleasure of having Minwolo come and actually teach one of my classes. So it was really fun to have him here. But if you read it carefully, what he's trying to do there in his book um, 
is articulate that what is destructive about the current system is the instrumental reason, right? The instrumental logic that governs capitalism and that, that, that is being implemented all over the world. So what is instrumental reason of the West? I mean, simply stated, instrumental reason is that is more interested in the end results and tries to find analytically the most efficient way of achieving those results. That is instrumental logic, right? Capitalism uses that, right? In the process of doing that, then instrumental logic instrumentalizes people, the environment, and everything else, right? So what he's saying is, can we develop a cosmology, a mode of thinking that is absolutely different from an instrumental reason, right? And that's where he goes into the native cosmologies. How did the native people of South America think the cosmos? Was it different from the rational, instrumental way of the Europeans, right? That's where the dharma scholars in India go. The cosmology of Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism. How does it defy the instrumental logic of Western thought? I think that is revolutionary. That's absolutely necessary to do. But here is my caveat. While these people in Pakistan and India are doing it, there is a repudiation, absolutist repudiation of Western thought, right? Western philosophy. Part of it is because it makes their job really convenient. You don't need to read your Foucault or Derrida or even Marx. You can just read two gurus and write about literature, right? Or you read two mullahs and you can write. It makes your job easier, right? The most productive way would be to put them in a conversation, right? Here is what Derrida does. Here is what Foucault does. Here is what Marx does. Now, I am going to bring this text from Al-Ghazali, from Al-Kindi. Sorry, my examples are from the Muslim history. This is what Al-Ghazali says here in this book. This is what Ibn Khaldun says in the Muqaddimah, volume 2. I have done it, right? You bring that knowledge and you juxtapose it about what Foucault is doing and what others is doing, right? Then you are changing that instrumental reason. You're infusing it with your own thought, with your own philosophy, right? Then you're doing productive work. But in order to do that, you have to know both the traditions. And that's a lot of work. Right. So what ends up happening in Pakistan as well as in India is the people develop this disdainful view of Western theory of English. Right. And they say, oh, we're not going to do that. Marx is too Eurocentric. They, I mean, Said even says that. But part of it is a shortcut because that tells them we don't need to read these people. We don't need to read Hegel. We don't need to read Kant. We don't read need to read any uh, Giorgio Agamben. We don't need to read, you know, people who have come after that, Habermas and everyone else. We can just bracket them off and rely on Indian philosophy, right? Or Bengali philosophy or Muslim philosophy and then write our dissertation. But if you do that, you're not necessarily creating a new discourse. You are basically creating an insular discourse which is not doing anything in the world. One. The worst part of it is that that jettisoning of other influences makes 
your mindset, a purest mindset, right? And you build, start believing in purest essences that you can retrieve. Now that is what creates your young men who are marching in the street, killing people who are suspected of eating cows and my young men in Pakistan who are measuring the length of their beards, right? right? That idea of purity is destructive, right? Because it assumes that there is this eternal truth unmediated, unhindered and not influenced by anything from outside and that we can retrieve that essence and then develop a life around it, right? First of all, there is no pure retrieval. There is no moment where you simply go and retrieve knowledge as an unmotivated subject. You always go in with the subjectivity that you have. That means you retrieve from history what suits you already, right? And then you mobilize it to the purpose, to your own worldview, which you have yourself purely constructed. So how can that be the most promising place in post-colonial theory or in literary studies, right? I don't see it as that, right? I could be wrong. I'm not saying this is my final word. So the reason I produced that video and I've also published on it is because I was seeing in Pakistan, people would send me these questions and there are now young scholar groups who have made it a point to retrieve and articulate the Islamic text, which is fine. I've been doing that for years, right? But what they're saying is this is all we need, right? And we don't need Marx, we don't need Foucault. If, if we just go back to our philosophers, we can create a cosmology which is pure of Western thought, which is free of other, which I think is an impossibility <coughs> and which is destructive and which will end up creating scholars in Pakistan who, in Peter Elbow's words, will be writing from their own ignorance. Right. How do you mean something on the international stage, right? How do you impact this world, this exploitative center of the world where I live? If you come up with, say, here are my five dharma scholars and they have said this about shanti and this about, you know, afterlife, yeah, maybe a few hippy-dippies will listen to you. You want to argue here to change the discourse or challenge it, you have to know where the discourse is, right? That's why it's so hard to be a post-colonialist in any department or in United States. You don't just bring what you have. You also stand there and say, yeah, I've read your Shakespeare. I've read your Foucault. I've read your Faulkner. I've read your Virginia Woolf. I have gone through your canon. And then I've gone through my own canon. I have gone through your major works of philosophy and thought, and then I've gone through my own works of philosophy. Now when I speak to you, I speak from this humble but formidable place because I can play with two cultures. I can play with more than one tradition. I think that is more productive work. It will take you a lifetime of learning, right? But once you produce your work, it will be sophisticated, it wouldn't be reductive, and it certainly wouldn't be tribal, right? So that was kind of my critique because of what I was seeing was coming out. Now you are the better judges of it 
because you are dealing with students who are doing decolonial studies. I think it can be done with post-colonial theory, right? But, you know, as I said, I could be wrong. Sorry, I get really passionate about these things. Uh, so if you go by the definition, let's say by Stalin, or there's another scholar who defines it. So what they say is a country is a container, right? It has a geographical boundary and it, it has a political system. For a nation state to be a nation state, it, and this comes from Stalin, it must have certain uh, constitutive parts. First of all, it must have a boundary, right? It must have contained borders that are different from another nation state. Then it must have, uh, if not a universal culture, uh, uh, a locally accepted culture and a language. All of these things combined with an accepted political system constitutes a nation state. A nation can be spread over two countries, can be a nation within a nation state, can be a nation that that is considers itself a nation but is considered an ethnicity by the dominant groups. So let's say if I wanted to give you an example of a nation, if you look at the Kurdish people, now they are spread over three countries, Turkey, Lebanon, uh, Syria, and Iraq. Now they politically on a larger scale consider themselves a nation, but they are part of three different nation states. Right. If they were to constitute, if they were to gain a territory which is autonomous, which has their own government, their own body of law, then they would become a nation state. Right. But the basic ingredient of a nation state is that you must have territory and you must have control over it and you must have a self-governing rule over it. And that becomes a container. But there can be several nations within a nation state, right? But there can only be one nation state, right? At least that is my understanding of it. I teach a course on nationalism, cosmopolitanism, and uh, globalization. So that's why I had to like go and read all these people on nationalism. So that's it then. Thank you all so much for having me and I hope you all do great and have a wonderful day.